Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be Francie Broghammer. She's a University of Notre Dame grad who is now a chief psychiatry resident who's going to talk to us about deaths of despair, namely suicide and why it's increasing. But first, we'd like to cover some background information on suicide to kind of set the table. Andrew, were there any any stats you learned about suicide in the United States that you found fascinating? Yeah, you know, especially in preparing for this radio show, I was reflecting a lot on, on just my training in residency in medical school and then in practice, the folks that I've got to care for who've attempted suicide. And, and there, there are some statistics that kind of jump out at me, and some of them I found surprising. One of the things that we look at in medicine is the difference between suicide attempts and, unfortunately, people being successful with suicide. And we look at the suicide attempts as a cry for help. You know, one, one of the things I was very interested to learn in my training, I, I always thought that if someone was depressed, you know, you would want to steer clear of talking about that lest you might give them an idea. Uh, turns out that's exactly opposite of, of what doctors and, and professionals are trained to do. You know, the idea is that if someone is depressed, you want to ask about it because usually attempted suicide and suicide thoughts are really a cry for help. It, it shocked me in training, and I said, okay, well, clearly these people know what they're doing. And then in practice, it's definitely been reinforced because the people that I, I get to care for in this place, you know, they, they want to tell you because they know it's abnormal. They don't really want to kill themselves. You know, I'm reminded of a study they did on the, the people who failed suicide attempts off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. Are you familiar with that? Uh, remind me. They interview. There's so many people who attempt suicide, unfortunately, off, off the Golden Gate Bridge. And they've interviewed the people who survived. And they said that the vast majority, I want to say 95% or better, said as soon as they left the rail, they said, what have I done? I wish I didn't do that. Wow. And so the, the thing is, is that for people in depression, you know, especially in the depths of it, they admittedly, and they'll tell you later when, when they're not as depressed, they can't think clearly, you know. And so the way I've come to look at it as suicide and suicide attempts are really a symptom of the severe depression. And obviously, from people of, of faith, you know, as Catholics, we know that people who are making rational decisions about suicide, that's a, a great sin of despair. However, in practice, I don't know many people who go into suicide rationally. It's something that they no. come at because they're, they're suffering greatly with depression and they're not receiving adequate treatment. And we're going to learn a lot of insights about that from Francie. The, the rates of suicide have been going up in every state since 1999 except one, <laughs> Nevada. Nevada's gone down 1%. But the last year we have full uh, results or full data for the U.S., 2016, 45,000 Americans aged 10 or older died by suicide. Wow, that's that, incredible. Yeah, that's a huge number. And it's now the second leading cause of death for teenagers and the 10th leading cause of death overall. And it, it's one of only three of the leading causes of death that's actually increasing. Yeah. That, that was one of the things that struck, struck me is that out of everything, you know, we, we really put science and medicine up on a pedestal in so many ways. We've got new technology and we've got new medicines and so many things are getting better and better, but suicide is getting worse. And, and you got to ask why. And that's what we're going to cover with Francie, but I have a feeling it has something to do with relationships. Uh, interestingly, over half of people who died by suicide did not have a known diagnosed mental health condition at the time of death. And in the United States, the number one cause or the number one way people commit suicide is? Probably firearms. Firearms. Whereas yeah. I read an article in Australia for both men and women, what's hanging? Oh, yeah. I'd say that's probably up there, unfortunately. Uh, sad. So if we look by various states, the rate of suicide for 100,000 people per year varies fourfold. So wow. the lowest suicide rate in the country, and this surprised me, is in Washington, D.C. Oh, interesting. 6.9 per 100,000. Wow. The highest rate, Montana, home of the Unabomber. Yep, I saw the Montana statistic as well. I, I got another piece of information that said New York was pretty low at 8 Per, let's see, is that 100,000? 100, 100, yes, 000. that is low. And Montana was 28, almost 29. Yep. That's incredible. 
Uh, it is. And every state has been increasing, except Nevada. Uh, in From 1999 to 2016, there was a 6% increase in Delaware, all the way to a 57% increase in North Dakota. What's happened up there? Well, I guess the, the oil, oil bust. The oil boom. I mean, the yeah. shale oil is still going. It, it was booming, and well. then I, w- I wonder if it slowed down or something. Is there anybody around you that ever committed suicide that got you wondering about this horrible thing? You know, I, I mean, I think most of us have been touched with, with family and friends. I've, I've definitely been touched in those ways with stories, and a lot of times we're surprised, you know, and I think that's the problem. The problem is that, you know, the fact that we were surprised means that it wasn't on our radar. We couldn't help ahead of time. You know, my first interaction, I guess, that I remember even as a child was a, another kid who went to my school, unfortunately, went through with suicide, and I, I think he was 13, you know, but you got to wonder, I mean, some of the things that I, I hope we talk about with Francie is like bullying and technology. And I'm, I'm trying to think to myself, you know, even with bullying, you know, 50 years ago, kids got bullied, but right. they, they, didn't, they didn't think that suicide was the option for them. And, you know, is it something from the breakdown of the family? Is it something related to suicide being held up as a reasonable alternative with like physician assisted suicide or even right. in some movies it's it's almost held up as as a good yes you know they made a, a infamous kind of now series on netflix some time ago about yes 13 reasons which i never watched but in in reading about it it goes through reasons why a person committed suicide but in reality especially as a, a young person you know an adolescent watching this it's it's glorified look at how much attention this got you know, but you and, won't be around to get the attention. It, well, and that's, it, you know, it's obviously a, it's an odd paradox, but I, I'm interested in figuring out why is suicide such a more common, you know, unfortunate option for kids now that in the past it wasn't. And I can't wait to see, is there a link through despair with physician-assisted suicide? Because oftentimes those patients are pressured by people around them. It's like, really, there's no hope. Yeah, and so is the motivation similar? So I, I can't wait to explore that. Well, and even even in in JAMA, just uh, last year, I believe they had a statistic that said prior to death. Now, this is referring to physician assisted suicide, especially ninety percent of people are depressed, clinically depressed, would benefit from therapy and medicine. I'm thinking that ninety percent of people before they die are not getting therapy and medicine to Correct. help them with that. I agree. So you've got some interesting uh, stats there also. Yeah, kind of, kind of to set the, set the stage of our discussion here, where, where do these suicides occur and who is at the highest risk? So the annual average in America is about 13 and a half suicides per 100,000 individuals, somewhere about twice as much as D.C. and about just under half as much as Montana. Men are more common to die by suicide than women, about three and a half times more common. However, women attempt suicide more than men. On average, there's about 120-some suicides a day in America. White males account for about seven out of ten suicides wow. as of 2016. white males. Uh, they're kind of the, especially the middle age is the highest rate. And, and how so, are they defining middle age? <laughs> a, a little bit uh, older than, than Tom no. and, and younger. No. <laughs> I feel like that's a trick question. I don't know what but, the answer uh, is. Mi- middle age white males are really, in, even in training, they, they really emphasized on us, you know, for people who are, who are in that demographic, they're the most at risk to go through with it. And as you pointed out, a firearms use in about half the suicides currently. And worldwide, suicide has increased 60% in the last 45 years. And whereas traditionally worldwide, elderly white males, again, the white males, were the most common except a little older demographic, now it's becoming the fact that in a third of countries, it's kids that are the most common. Oh, my goodness. I, I noticed also two kind of high-risk groups. And I think this this is kind of a tangential discussion of why they're higher risk, but folks with chronic pain of one type or another uh, were about twice as likely to commit suicide. And you might, you know, conjecture they have, have means through medications they're taking for pain medicines and, and depression is a huge part of chronic pain, which which we are familiar with. But then also the the folks with gender confusion, gender identity disorder, oh, yes. the LGBTQ 
community are actually about three times as likely, and I've seen other places where that's quoted higher, but they're significantly higher than their age-adjusted peers. And, you know, many people feel like it's because they're not accepted for their, their choices of gender identity. And then a lot of other people feel that the gender identity is a symptom of psychological distress, mm-hmm. which we've, we've identified. And in the past, the American uh, Psychological Association has also identified. And another symptom of that would be suicide attempts and suicide itself. Sure. Uh, something interesting I found is that in the world, the highest rates of suicide are in Eastern Europe, and the lowest rates are in the Eastern Mediterranean region and Central Asia, which was fascinating. In 2016, 793,000 suicides worldwide. That's about two and a half times the population of the country of Iceland. Oh, my goodness. Where I'm going next week. That's how I know the population. Anyway, <laughs> so the, the worldwide standardized suicide rate, about 10.5 per 100,000, just under what it is in the U.S., which was rated most recently at 15.3 per 100,000. But Russia and Lithuania, the most suicide-prone countries in the world, at 31 to 32 per 100,000, a little bit more dangerous than Montana even. Wow, that is incredible. And you, I, I mean, these are complicated things about even like social norms where it's accepted, where it's, you know, looked upon as something that you, you've seen modeled around you. We know that people who see suicide modeled around them are more at risk. And, you know, one of the things I can't help but think about, too, is just our cultures, you know, and really worldwide, I think, fascination with violence as opposed yes. to even before everybody had TVs in their house, you know, violence was something you read about with horror, you know. Yes. And now every time somebody is murdered, we read about it and you almost forget about it because you just hear about it all the time. Well, before we go into our break, our medical trivia question dealing with the subject of the day, simple, true or false. Chronic use of marijuana increases the risk of suicide. Is that true or false? We'll be back with more Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome back to our second segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor. We have with us today on the line, Dr. Francie Broghammer. She's a chief psychiatry resident at University of California, Irvine, and she used to live where we're recording, Northern Indiana, when she went to the University of Notre Dame, where she graduated science pre-professional with a Portuguese language and Brazilian studies uh, emphasis also. She currently lives in Southern California, and her interests in psychiatry are patient advocacy, spirituality, and prevention of mental health diseases. She already serves on several administrative bodies that are advancing the roles of psychiatry. Uh, She's married, has a four-year-old son. Francie, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. And we're thrilled too. So to start this off, Francie, what is it about deaths of despair, about suicide, that has really tugged at your heart and your mind? Yeah, good question. So as a resident in particular, an intern, you get stuck with most of the undesirable shifts in the department. And I spent so much of my early residency just seeing patients at 2, 3 in the morning come essentially flooding in the door. And they were there for one reason or another, but at the core of it, they were saying they were deeply dissatisfied with the trajectory their life was on, and they were contemplating either taking their life in the short term via suicide, or in the longer term, they were maybe inadvertently working to take their own life via addiction and and drugs and alcohol. And it just was of epidemic proportions that I didn't exactly realize before. And then when you take a step back and say one in five people in America is facing a mental illness and our emergency rooms are filled with patients who feel that their life is so unsatisfactory they can't go on, I really felt compelled. It was my job as a psychiatrist to take a step back and say, what is going on here and how can I have a meaningful impact, which is when I really started to dig into the quote-unquote deaths of despair. Man, that's, that's incredible. It is, it's not something that's covered a lot in medical school, is it? It's not, and I wish it was, but to be honest with you, it's an uncomfortable topic, and because you can't say, here is the problem, here is the cause, and here is the solution, it's something you just have to grapple with, and it makes, I think, the more type A, scientific-minded people a little bit more uncomfortable, and it's, it's unknown. It's harder to cover, and so I, I understand, but I do wish it got more airtime. You know, Francie, kind of setting the stage for a lot of our listeners, suicide, I think most people understand kind of the definition of that. What is, do we have an idea as to the underlying cause of suicide? Yeah, so suicide, 
most often is preceded by a state of depression. And depression, you or I might think of it in a clinical sense, a major depressive disorder, for example, but depression can come about for a number of reasons. It can be a psychiatric or mental illness. It can be depression secondary to a medical illness, maybe severe diabetes, for example. It could be depression due to a significant life stressor um, or to another significant mental illness, such as schizophrenia, bipolar, um, or even drug abuse or addiction problems. And at its core, depression is to try to embody this and bring it to life is this overwhelming feeling of disengagement from the world around you. I walk outside, the sky is blue, and I say, it's my job to go to work today, even though it's Monday and I might not want to. (laughs) Someone who's who's experiencing depression is going to wake up and they're going to go, it's Monday, I don't want to go to work, but I can't even get out of bed. I don't care if the sky is blue. I don't care what's happening. Things that used to be important to me or define me don't matter anymore. And that's a terrifying place to be when we lose the ability to kind of define ourselves. And you can get to that point a number of ways, but when you are there, it can be a very um, depersonalized and scary experience. Man, when when people have these symptoms of depression, do you find that most often they're coming to you complaining of depression or you have to introduce the idea that, you know, maybe you're depressed and depression is causing some of your thought processes? You know, it's, it's a split, but I would say most often people are not aware. And I will say that I'll back up and say mental illness is a unique subset of illness within medicine because most of the time you get sick and you say, oh, I think I broke my leg. It's really hurting. I'm going to go to the emergency room or I'm losing a lot of weight. My stomach hurts. I think I need to go see a doctor. Mental illness, on the other hand, does the exact opposite. It makes you draw into yourself. And if you're depressed and it's hard for you to get out of bed, the idea of going and reaching out to a total stranger and telling them you're having a hard time is not probably at the top of your list. So very often we're actually not in a position in the hospital to necessarily see all of the patients who are suffering from the most severe depression. So the most severe cases are actually brought in by friends, family, community, police, um, emergency medical services, things like that, because these patients, it's so much harder for them to reach out due to the nature of their illness. That's fascinating because, uh, like you said, if you don't realize you have a problem, your thought processes will tell you, well, this is just normal for me. And so a lot of times there's a stigma associated with seeing a psychiatrist in our society, but how much can you blame that stigma versus the disordered thought processes for people not seeking psychiatric help? So both are at play there, and how much you can attribute to the stigma uh, depends a lot on both the geographical region, the family upbringing, the environment at the time, because even within the same zip code here in Orange County where I'm located, you know, we have certain nationalities that are more inclined to take care of their own, kind of keep them clustered in the home, and they'll wait until their family members are quite ill until they reach out for help. So it really varies. So we covered statistics and that suicide is increasing in every state, but Nevada, um, but especially in the young. What is it about America that it's becoming even more susceptible to suicide? Right. A lot is, is changing, and it's not something you can pinpoint easily. And I'll back up and say it's there's two groups, actually, that we're seeing a spike in suicide. And one is adolescents, in particular, in particular adolescent females. The other group is middle-aged Caucasian males without a bachelor's degree. And the reason that suicide is increasing in both of those groups is very different. But at the core, we're seeing changes in the economy, changes in family structure, changes in religious practices, and changes in how we just relate as human beings and have relationships that are really affecting both of these groups, but in different ways. So relationships are a key thing. But another key thing uh, in things that you've spoken about before is the four-letter word hope. What is the relationship between hope in suicide. I'm so glad you brought this up because, so we talked about suicide and how suicide is often preceded by a state of depression. But I tell, you know, medical students all the time when I interact with them, depression actually won't kill you. It's hopelessness that will. Um, And I think that when you're in an incredible state of suffering and you don't know when it's going to get better, what it's going to look like, if there is a light at the end of the tunnel, As human beings, we're wired to endure a superhuman amount of pain and suffering, knowing that things will get better and things can get better. But as soon as you take that carrot away and you say, I don't know if it's going to get better, your ability to persevere through pain and suffering diminishes rapidly. And so it's actually the absence of hope or hopelessness 
that leads to suicide far more than depression itself does. And the opposite of hope in Catholic theology is what's called the sin of despair. But I, I recently reading G.K. Chesterton, who I love, it became clear to me that another way to look at hope is to call it anticipated joy and to look at despair is anticipated suffering. So if all you're anticipating is suffering, life would be pretty bleak. Absolutely. And I think if we are going to take this and really ground it in a Catholic understand or Christian understanding of what suffering is, there's earthly suffering, and then there's kind of a life beyond. And I think it's what's so interesting about the role of religion in all of this, and we can touch on that the suicide rate significantly lower for devoutly religious individuals. Why is and I that? I think part of the part of the protective factor there is that. There's earthly suffering that we may be contending with, but the very core of our Christian teaching says that our suffering has a purpose and there's meaning, and it's, it's about a life beyond that, which we're in currently. And that inherently instills a sense of hope that cannot be taken away by any processes in the current life. I'm curious, is, is there a powerful. difference in the rate of suicide between believing Catholics and believing Protestants? So... I'll back it up a little bit and take that question more broadly, if you'll allow me. Please. Um, What we see when we look at the religious studies, you'll see that we get a protective effect with suicide, both in a horizontal and a vertical manner, if you will. Okay. Um, So religion is protective. Um, The most um, kind of strict religions, if... uh, whether it be Protestant or Catholic, actually have lower suicide rates. When you start getting more into kind of evangelical, my individual faith, their suicide rates are roughly on par with the general population. Ah. That being said, isn't that interesting? Yes. But mm-hmm. but it actually segues with a speaker I heard last week who's um, a theologian at Notre Dame. And, yeah, you know about Notre Dame. A- anyway, or no, he was at Notre Dame. Now he's at Steubenville. But anyway, he was a convert from Calvinism. And he said that he learned from his wife, who was to getting together with other theology majors' wives at Notre Dame, is that in Calvinism, there was no role for redemptive suffering like there is in Catholic teaching. And I'm wondering if there's a link there with the despair. There absolutely is. And that comes back to the idea of kind of innately within the scripture is this message of not promising a life free of suffering, but there being meaning and purpose in suffering and a a life beyond that, which we are experiencing now, which are all very protective when it comes to this. Well, and Francie, you mentioned horizontal and vertical protections. Can you delve into that a little bit more? Yeah. So the vertical protections is kind of what we were just talking about, kind of your experience uh, of your faith, your lived faith, the interpretation of the scriptures, understanding that there is meaning in your suffering and being able to find hope in that, because we will all suffer as a result of original sin. It will inherently be part of our human experience. But the the vertical, um, excuse me, the horizontal experience is very different. When you look at who actually commits suicide less, the who commits suicide the least religiously, um, it's people who go to church the most. It's not those who pray the most or read the most scripture per se. It's people who go to church more than once a week. Oh, um, there was a, a guy at Harvard who looked at this very, very closely, and he found that people who went to church once a week had a suicide rate that was half that of the general population. And people who went to church more than once a week, actually during the 16-year study, didn't have a single suicide. Wow. That was close to 90,000 people, so it was really powerful. Wow. Now, there was one group, I remember, you had me watch um, a video uh, about the, the couple who coined the term deaths of despair, and in it they show that there's one group that has not had an increase in suicide. I was wondering if you could comment on it. I think it was black women. Yes. So... Black women from the very beginning have been the marginalized group of the marginalized group. Not only (laughs) are they African-American, but they're also women. And so they have never had the opportunity to exist in a state of pure autonomy and just saying, I will stand on my own and I will make it work. So from the very beginning, they've had to exist in this community, depend on each other to get by. And they've built a very protective network as a result of that. If you look at our minority groups, even with things like allo parenting, right? It takes a village to raise a child. Yes. 
we are not seeing similar phenomena going on in our middle-class Caucasian families in America over the last several decades. And now that things are getting harder and the economy is shifting, we're falling apart because we don't have these protective mechanisms in place that many of the minority groups have had to instill and put in place for decades in order to even survive to get to this point. Would that, would that be a stronger sense of community, would you say? Would that go back to the idea of relationships? Absolutely. And you know what's interesting about this, Tom, is that the core of these deaths of despair, the suicides, is an epidemic of loneliness. If you go back just two decades, people in America right now say they're lonelier than they've ever been. One in five people say they have no one they could talk to if they were going through a hard time. Wow, that's terrible. But we're supposed to be so connected. I mean, (laughs) yeah. how many friends do they have on Facebook? Exactly. We're all alone, but we're doing it together, right? <laughs> <laughs> the the yes. irony, you know, that that's one of the things, and not to jump around too much, but kind of before, before we had you on earlier, we were talking, and one of the things that kind of confuses me is especially the, the suicide rate in adolescence increasing so much. And, you know, people frequently talk about bullying, especially towards, like, folks with gender uh, dysphoria and things of that nature. You know, and they, they blame bullying as one of the main causes for the rising suicide rate. But, you know, the thing that occurred to me is kids were bullied. You know, this is not a new thing about bullying. They were bullied 50 years ago. Why is the suicide rate going up? And, I mean, to, to me it seems to be related to the loneliness because of more technology. Is that your yeah, experience? It's, it's packed. That's a packed question. There's a lot of play and, there. And let's go, because it's so packed, We're at the time of a break. We'll take a quick break. Francie can pull her thoughts together and give us a tremendously erudite answer here on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor returning to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And as you all know, I'm known for packed powerhouse questions. That's my (laughs) role in the Dr. Doctor trio. And so my, my packed powerhouse question for Francie here is the relationship of why suicide rates are rising in adolescence, you know, is it because of bullying? Weren't they bullied 50 years ago? Why is it rising? Is it because of technology? And how does this tie into the loneliness epidemic? Francie, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think bullying is still happening. You're absolutely right. But it looks a little bit different than it used to. And that's that bullying is not, it still happens face to face, but it's increasingly happening through a computer. And the loss there is that I'm sure we've all been in this experience before where you say something, it comes out wrong, and you hurt someone else's feelings. And you have to see that look on their face. You have to contend with those difficult emotions and go, oh, gosh, I think I misstepped here. And you learn from that. When you place a computer between two people in that interaction, there's no learning. There's no human interaction. Mm. There's no empathy that's gained from that. And so we begin on a bit of a downward spiral, if you will. And also, people are more bold over the computer. You can be a lot meaner when it's not to someone's face. Oh, yeah. You don't necessarily have to deal with that feeling immediately after. How many, how many times have you read something and said, there's no way you'd ever say that to another human face-to-face? You know, mm-hmm. But they're not humans through a computer, and that's what's so scary about it. We're not viewing our fellow humans as humans via the computer, which is certainly contributing. How, how do you think that plays a role on like an adolescent's mind when they're not getting those feedback experiences? Does it, does it lead to more of that behavior even into adulthood? That and more. So actually we have studies now showing that teenagers today are spending about 40% less time face-to-face with their peers than they did just 18, 19 years ago. 40% less time. So that's 40% less face-to-face interactions going well or going poorly that we can learn from. And it's manifesting in several different ways once they hit college or even the workforce. Part of that is decreased human empathy. Another part is it's harder for them to communicate. They haven't developed these skills as thoroughly as most of us had at this stage. And so we're starting to see, I see it regularly in the office. Young adults are coming in and they're anxious because they have to make phone calls regularly and they don't feel comfortable communicating with people even over the phone. They haven't developed these very baseline skills. So while it might be just upfront, bullying, low self-esteem, et cetera, down the line it can become anxiety due to impaired communication, low self-esteem because they're not sure that they're able to navigate this complicated young adult life. And so it, it manifests in many different ways. What, what could we do protectively? You know, I'm just thinking of myself as a, a father of young children, and many of our listeners have children at home. 
you know, is it so clearly tied to technology? Is the answer just limiting technology, this won't be a problem? Or is it more anything else that you would recommend to your patients, I guess? Yeah, so technology is a piece of it, but it's not the full piece of it. And what I would say, especially when you're considering families, is take a hard look in the mirror. Because what we model for our kids, they pick up and they pick up quickly. And kids have problems with technology. Adults have just as many problems with technology. I can't tell you how many times kids will have to, I've seen kids tell their parents to put their phones away. And that's just part of it. The other part of it is what message does that send if your parent has their phone out at the dinner table? Right? It says something could happen that might be more important than this time with you. Exactly. And there are a lot of kind of unconscious messages that are sent that way. And I think you asked, how, how can we make this better in the home outside of just limiting technology? And one of the best things I've heard that's had an impact on families in a positive way is making sacred spaces. You know, when you come in the door, maybe have a phone basket or a computer basket, whatever it may be, or a sacred time between six and eight at the dinner table and in the living room is family time. Reclassify it completely as family time and recognize, tell yourself, tell your kids, you know, before that and after that, you can check your emails and do what you need to do, but make a clear and conscious effort to have this protected time where you will be present. And I'll tell you what, that's tough up front, but you do it for a couple days, it gets easier, a couple weeks, it gets even easier, and a couple weeks after that, you're going to be yearning for this time because you'll realize it's good for you and your family. Great ideas for Lent, Francie. Yes. Uh, (laughs) So the media, through Netflix's 13 Reasons, through the news, are they responsible in any way, do you think, for the increase in suicide among the young? I'm going to back that up and say not just among the young, but I do think it is a contributing factor for everyone. And you and I spoke briefly before um, about the Papageno and the Werther effects. Yes. And what's interesting here at the core of these is the, the notion that suicide is essentially a contagion. If one person commits suicide, we have studies now showing that people three degrees removed from that person, so their friends, their friends' friends, and their friends' friends' friends, are all at increased risk of committing suicide around that time. Just because they knew and somebody. So, just because you knew somebody. Wow. We have decades and decades of social science data supporting this. And then take a step back. You know, we have 13 reasons why. Think of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain not too long ago. Can you think of anyone that wouldn't have been three degrees removed from any of those instances? Wow. Probably not. Probably not. So when we have things like this happening within the country, it's all over the news. Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, the entire country was at increased risk of suicide during that time. And we actually know we, uh, it was a fascinating study. They tracked the number of emergency room visits for young adolescent females, or sorry, young adolescents in general, following the release of 13 Reasons Why. Yes. And they saw a three-fold increase in the number of ER visits for suicidal ideation following the release of this Three year. times? For what period of time after that? Or was it while it was on the air? It was, it was, it was six to nine months, I believe, was the, oh the study. Goodness. I have to go back and check directly. So, so do you think that with the power the media has, it is irresponsible to release movies like that? I personally do. And the American Psychiatric Association and many other mental health boards were kind of up in arms when this came out. Oh. Because... Not because it brought up the topic. The topic is really important to talk about, and that's an important way to fight stigma. But it's the way that they went about it. And 13 Reasons Why is a quick premise. A young girl commits suicide and then releases 13 tapes targeting 13 people to say how they directly contributed to their suicide. And she narrates it in a post-mortem way, and she watches how everyone reacts from her post-mortem state, which, as you and I know, is very unrealistic. Yes, but it in many ways makes her kind of successful in this suicide. Uh, so isn't that is not, part of the fantasy for, for some people considering suicide is that absolutely. maybe people will understand more after I'm dead. Maybe people will realize how I've been suffering or how they've hurt me. I'll show them. I'll teach them. They'll be sorry when I'm gone. Man, you think about all the public health crises. You know, we talk about the opioid epidemic. We talk about people, you know, who choose not to vaccinate and the rise of vaccine-preventable diseases. What about suicide? You know, isn't there some kind of public health actions that could be taken to prevent things like this where we saw a threefold rise in ER visits? I mean, that's that's not small. It seems like there's something that we should look at on a, on a public health standpoint to address that. 
I completely agree. And, you know, there's some general media reporting guidelines out there, such as don't release suicide letters, don't release unnecessary details or romanticize the process. That being said, they clearly are not followed. And 13 Reasons Why and other types of media like that are perfect examples. So that would be the that would be the Werther effect, right? When you are exposed to someone who's committed suicide, you're more likely to commit suicide. But tell us about the Papageno effect. Yes. So the Papageno effect is the opposite, and that is that when you encounter someone who was in a tough situation and they made it out and they're doing okay, you yourself are inspired to find a way out as well. Um, And this was inspired by a play where a similar thing happened. But what we know, I'll give you a more real-life example, and... Do you remember the story of Brittany Maynard not too yes, long ago, the young yes. woman who was pursuing physician-assisted suicide? Yes, 29-year-old so with brain cancer. Exactly, exactly. And she got all sorts of media attention in North America for this at the time. And there was a similar case going on in South America of a young woman with cystic fibrosis who was oh. actually attempting to move to America to obtain physician-assisted suicide. And she was getting equivalent uh, media attention for this. They were following her around, telling her story, making it very personal. And along her journey, she ran into someone who also was suffering from cystic fibrosis and said, I've been there. I know what it feels like to think that there's no way out and it won't get better, but let me tell you that it does. And let me tell you why I'm glad I'm alive and why my life has meaning. And she inspired her. And you know what? The young woman changed her mind. Did that get media attention? Her father was up in arms because as soon as his daughter changed her mind, the media fell away immediately. Oh, wow. So it was a father, I hope, was happy that his daughter wasn't going to do it. Right, but he was so disgusted by the with the media, what the media, the media. uses is important to put out there, the sensationalization. You know, it, it makes me recall a, a, a story, I, th- I think it's a book, or it may have been a study about the survivors of the Golden Gate Bridge suicide attempts. Are you familiar with that? Mm-hmm. The I, jumpers. The jumpers, yeah. I referenced that a little bit in our, our prelude to the interview. Has that been something that you've seen in practice, or is there a role for, like, support groups there? Absolutely. And I think the story you might be alluding to, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to share it because I think it is powerful. Yeah. Um, one narrative in particular was a, a young man who wanted to and his life. And for weeks and months, he had been documenting his pain and his despair, his isolation. And he finally said, you know, today's the day I'm going to go to the Golden Gate Bridge and I'm going to end my life. And following his suicide, the uh, it was a psychiatrist and a medical examiner were going through his belongings. They found this journal. They found his entry. And at the end of the entry, it said, today's the day. I'm going to go. I'm going to do it. But I won't do it if on my way, one person smiles at me. That is so sad. But you know what? I remember my first year of college, I had a roommate, and he always did these experiments on the way to class, passing by you know 50 or 100 students, to see how many would smile at him or say hi. If he said hi to them, it was amazing how few would do it. What mm-hmm. a society. Exactly. It was pretty cold and up I there, did. though, Tom. I <laughs> <laughs> went to the school up in the UP for those listeners all who are right, yeah. All right. Hey, in Naples, well, a lot of people said hi to me. You know, looking down at your snow boots and it's cold, I get it. It's a little harder. But. <laughs> well, we're going to take one final break, and we're going to go go into overtime with Francie because this is going so great. We'll be back in a few moments on Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Doctor, the official radio show of the Catholic Medical Association, and we are excited to start the fourth segment of our show with the answer to Tom's trivia question. In keeping with our topic of deaths of despair and the modern American fascination with marijuana, the true-false question is, chronic use of marijuana increases the risk of suicide. Is that true or false? Well, according to a study of thousands of Veterans Administration hospital patients, it demonstrated that women have a fourfold risk of suicide if they are chronic marijuana users. Men have twice the use. So this is just one more piece of information demonstrating that marijuana is not harmless like many people think it is. I think especially with marijuana, I've had patients tell me they use it for depression uh, and it's helpful. I said, oh, maybe when you're high, Um, but it's actually a depressant. 
uh, and so it would actually make depression worse. So that is something that may be a common misunderstanding to people who prefer to use marijuana. So, but back to Francie, one fascinating thing I learned in the Deaths of Despair video that you sent me to watch is that there are a couple of suicide belts geographically in the United States that seem to have higher rates in the states that are in the Rocky Mountains, all the way up to Alaska, and then east to west from Colorado to West Virginia. And in many ways, the whole map of suicide rates seems to be red versus blue state with red states having a higher risk. What's going on? Yes. Well, I'll tell you this, just to clarify up front. Who you vote for does not affect your uh, suicide rates directly. <laughs> Thank you, Francie. Thank I guess you. that's no a good qualifier. Of course. <laughs> but what is going on is that you see historically red states tend to be slightly more rural or blue-collar. Um, and one of the huge shifts we've seen in the last several decades is the change of union blue-collar work. And it just doesn't look like it used to. If you go back to the 1970s, early 1980s, we were in a bit of a blue-collar aristocracy. Yes. You know, you could, you could come out, you could have your starting minimum wage job and slowly each year gain prestige and gain security within the company. You could afford the American dream off your blue-collar salary. And there was security in that. Oftentimes men would spend one life or spend their entire life at one, one company. Job. Yes. And they could have their white picket fence, two and a half kids and a golden retriever, and there was security there. We are not seeing that anymore. If you are at a company for three, four years, the chances of you leaving that company is very high. And the chance of you staying, being promoted, being paid more is actually lower than it used to be. And so in a way, there's the, the quote unquote lost narratives of their lives for these, these individuals, if you'll call it that, because they can't identify as a GNC worker, for example. Um, and they, it's harder for them to grasp onto who they are as individuals. And we're seeing this sweeping, in particular, red states. But it's mostly states where there's an incredible amount of blue-collar work that's seen a huge dynamic shift in the last several decades. And there's just that, not that security there anymore. And it's causing the identities of middle-aged Caucasian males, especially those without a bachelor's degree, to be called into question. And it's directly contributing to an increase in the suicide rate for this demographic. So do you think that as job opportunities improve for this demographic, suicide rates will go down, or is it more complicated than that? I'm hesitant to say that it will, you know, because our, actually our unemployment rate, if you look at it, is technically the lowest it's been in a very, very long time. Yes. But unemployment doesn't tell us the, the whole story. I actually think that the unemployment rate is a bit of an antiquated indices because if you, it doesn't account for what we call idle Americans in social science data, ah. which is Americans that are out of work and not looking for work, Yes, which would include those pursuing higher education, such as going to Notre Dame. But it also... <laughs> I don't consider you guys idle. <laughs> <laughs> but it also includes people who are out of work saying, I don't think I need to look quite yet. Maybe I'll dabble back in school. I'm not quite sure what I'm doing. And the rate of individuals, even when you control for those pursuing graduate or undergraduate education, the rate of individuals out of work and not work, looking for work is increasing. And so saying our unemployment rate is low is great, but it doesn't tell us the full story. And I think looking into the future with how the economy is shifting one way or another, I'm worried only because we're seeing an increase in contract work right now which is great in many ways. It provides a lot of flexibility. And I think with time, especially those who have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, will be able to provide for themselves and their families in ways that they couldn't before. But again, this switching from company to company, not knowing if you're going to have a job this year, even though you're in a contract right now, leads to a fair amount of instability and doesn't create that identity, which so many of us need and is very important for our mental health. You know, in listening to Deaton and Jones, the couple that came up with the Deaths of Despair moniker, they seem to suggest that countries where the government takes care of its people, so there's the enormous social safety net from the government, do better with suicide. Is that true? And do you think that their suggestion that these more, um, you know, nanny states are better for people is true? So it's a bit of a baby bear's porridge here. Um, you don't want too much, but you don't want too little. <laughs> That's, is, isn't that the way with most things in life? You know, It is, and it's real hard to get in the mean. middle sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Because especially if you look at some Asian countries in particular, um, 
their suicide rate is higher, but it's due to increased kind of control and or lack of individual individuality and increased government control. And that's damaging in its own way. Yes. And if you come to the swing to the other side and it's everyone can do what's best for them and everyone will find their own way, that's also damaging. There needs to be a moderate amount of structure and so that people are free to shift within that and also define themselves but not feel like they're lost and kind of spiraling. Francie, if you had the power to do three things to reduce suicide in America, where would you put your money? So first and foremost, and you might laugh, but I wish that people would smile at each other and and earnestly ask how you're doing. Because we don't exist in community anymore. We don't even know our neighbor next door. No one goes to their neighbor for a cup of sugar. Everybody drives to Target. And that's damaging. I'm serious. The, stu- no. the studies yeah. show us. Oh, I agree with it's you. Devastating. But it, it's, <laughs> it's amazing how good you feel when someone smiles on you. I mean, you got those mirror neurons going. You start to get endorphins going. You know, you pass it on, you know, what you receive. They've got those commercials where one person does one thing for someone else. So you've got reciprocity. Well, it's difficult, too, because th- things are so easy now that it's, for, for most Americans, it's easy to get along without interacting with people. In the past, you had to do it. Now you almost have to force yourself to go out of your way to interact with people when you don't need or to. Or one of the best times in the Midwest, blizzards. When you are snowed in, you can't go anywhere, people come out of their houses and they talk to each other. That's that's and true. Does that, that happen anymore. in California? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of rain this year, but no blizzards yet. Um, but yeah, no, simple stuff like bunkos. Like the the neighborhood bunko night that you're always a little bit annoyed and probably has fallen up to the side. That's you for out here. Really <laughs> <meaningful>. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> we got bunko in Southern California. <laughs> We're going to have to try bunko. <laughs> so yeah. smiling, asking how you're doing. Smiling. What's your second Having, thing? I would like to change the way that the media covers things. Anytime you turn on the news, it's negative, it's deaths, it's rapes, it's suicide, it's whatever. But not, there's not too many positive stories, and I think we really need to work to latch on to this Papageno effect a little bit more. And there's a lot of amazing things happening in this world, and we need to bring that to attention because positive stimulates more positive. So we've got to stop focusing on the negative, See, even if, if it sells. If it were up to me, the Papageno effect would be the George Bailey effect. Really, <laughs> I love uh, it. <laughs> uh, I know. Or Clarence, you know, one, one or the other. For, for those of you who are fans of It's a Wonderful Life, my wife's favorite movie. But uh, I think that's the idea there uh, with Papageno from a few centuries ago. What's number three on your list, Francie? Number three, and I might sound like I'm beating a dead horse. We've all heard it. But that's to, to really just get the stigma out of the way. You know, the reality is, is that the body is an amazing and intricate thing. And to, to pretend that our body and our mind are separate... Are, it's just unrealistic. It's so much more complicated than that. And just like you can get diabetes, you can get cancer, you can break a bone, your brain, your mind, and your soul can get sick sometimes. And that happens. And it's no different than breaking a bone or getting diabetes. And we have people who are here to help, who are trained and want to help with this. But feeling like your mental illness is a personal failing is not going to help anyone. In fact, it's only going to make you get worse. And it's not going to lead to meaningful outcomes for anyone around you either. So the idea that this is your own fault and you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and push forward, I think it's got to, it's got to fall to the wayside. And we've got to recognize this for the men- medical illness that it is and recognize we have support. And we're you know, one of the best homilies I ever heard address this for those who think they have to do it themselves, when the, when the priest said, look, even Jesus needed Simon to carry the cross. So even God himself needed That's the help from a good. lowly man. It's like, when I think of that, it's like, yeah, of course I can ask for help. Well, and even from a, from a medical perspective, I always ask folks, too, you know, if, if you were told you had diabetes, does, does going without insulin make you tougher? You know, is it a personal failing that your, your pancreas or your thyroid, for example, decided to not work anymore? You know, and so it's, I completely agree. I think the stigma, I don't completely understand why it's there, but it's got to stop. Francie, what would you say to people who are either thinking about suicide or know somebody who is thinking about suicide? What would you recommend to them? First and foremost, I'd say you're not alone. You know, this is something over half of Americans will have suicidal thoughts at some point in their life. It's part of the natural human experience, and it's something we all contend with. And talk to people, reach out. If you're feeling this way, even though it's the last thing you want to do, let someone know, anyone. 
It doesn't necessarily have to be a professional, but reach out and work to build meaningful community around you because that will be the most important piece of you staying safe and you getting healthy. And if you know someone that you think may be in a similar situation, even if they're putting up walls and pushing you out, always, always, always reach out and say that you're there. I understand you might not want to speak to me today, but I'm always here should you need anything and sound like a broken record because day by day you're going to start pulling bricks off their wall and eventually they know that you're there when they're ready to reach out. And Francie, as we're wrapping up, I want to hand out uh, the suicide National Suicide Hotline to everyone. It's one 800 273 8255-273-8255. If you are contemplating suicide or someone you love is, please have them call this. If someone's in acute danger, always feel free to call 911, and they are trained to respond to suicide as well. Francie, do you have a last 15-second comment uh, that you'd like to make? I would just like to thank you guys for having me on and, and taking on this harrowing tough topic because most people shy away, and that's part of why we're in the problem that we are today. So I think the more often we can openly and freely talk about this, the better off that everyone's going to be. So thank you guys. Francie, thanks so much for being here. And thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official Catholic Medical Association radio program brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find it on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. Be sure to tune in next week for your next dose of Dr. Doctor where we will be discussing Catholic telemedicine with Ooh. Dr. Kathleen Bircheman. And this is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Remember to show up for your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor. And tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.